Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, June 1st, 2018, so that we may travel to Lake City this weekend and attend the Florida State League of the South Conference. Tonight we are going to present on the Gospel of John, Part 3, and this is subtitled, The Sons of God. In the opening portions of this commentary on the Gospel of John, we hope to have sufficiently illustrated from Old Testament scriptures, as well as from the Revelation and other sources, the meanings of the assertions that Yahshua Christ is the Word made flesh and the light come into the world. Assertions by which the Apostle had poetically and confidently attested that Yahshua Christ was indeed Yahweh God himself, the God of the Old Testament incarnate as a man, and that he was the true messenger to man sweeping aside all of the false claims of antiquity. So we saw that John, attesting that Christ is the light to come into the world, had also made an assertion in reference to Christ, which had formerly been claimed by the great kings of antiquity, those of the Hittites, Babylonians, Egyptians, and others, who had made that same claim for themselves, even imagining for themselves to be the, the incarnation of the Son here on earth. Later in John chapter 12, Christ himself is recorded as having originated the assertions which John has made for him here, as the event actually preceded the record. Then coming to verse 10 of this first chapter of John, we contended with the King James translation of the passage, which reads, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. This passage may have been clearer in the English of 1611. However, today that word world may well be understood in an entirely different manner, not intended by the original translators. Examining that word world, we came to the conclusion that the word would be better translated as society, since it does not refer to the entire planet and everything on it the way that it is often interpreted today. There are passages in the classical Greek writings where the word appears in broad contexts and may be interpreted as universe. However, that is not necessarily the manner in which it was used in the New Testament, and it was not always the manner in which the classical Greek writers had used the term. It is, of course, true that in six days days which we interpret to be ages. Yahweh God made the heaven and the earth and everything in them. In those same six days or ages, he takes credit for having created the sun, moon, and stars, 
things which are generally perceived as being outside of our planet. However, it is also true that there are many things here on this planet, even people, whom Yahweh does not take credit for having created. This is evident in Matthew chapter 15, where Christ had said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. It is also apparent in Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where he said, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world, that same word, cosmos. The field is the world, or cosmos. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and that's a different word, ahion, which means an age. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world, or again, ahion, or eon, or age. Since certain things were kept secret from the foundation of the world, there must be a history of certain early events which were not revealed in the Genesis account. But as we see in the revelations of the New Testament scriptures, there is a world which Yahweh created, and there is a world which lieth in wickedness, as the King James Version translates 1 John, or 1 John, chapter 5, verse 19, in part. Among the elements of this wickedness are the plants which Yahweh did not plant, and the tares sown by the devil, who is also identified as that primeval serpent of Genesis. So if the world is the entire planet, and if he has promised to root up and destroy so much of it, which world is it that Yahshua seeks to save? If everything that Yahweh created is good, and if, as Christ attests, a good tree cannot produce evil fruit, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke chapter 6, how is it? that he can also say to his disciples, as it is recorded in John chapter 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. And how is it that he says to them later, in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. For this reason James later said that a friend of the world is an enemy of God. If we choose the world, the world cannot hate us. If we choose God, the world will indeed hate us. So there is a world which Christ created, which he seeks to save. 
and there is a world which is evil and which hates both Christ and those who follow him. This later world is alien to Christ and therefore it cannot be the world which he created. One world will be saved and one world will be destroyed. Therefore we cannot imagine that the word world in these cases is the universe or the planet. To the ancient Greeks, cosmos could refer to the entire universe as a specific order, which is what the word really means, order. Or it could refer to the functioning order of a government or the order of some particular portion of the world, of the planet. But it never referred to the planet alone, and neither can it in the context of the New Testament. So we can only conclude that it must be translated as society, referring to the referring either to the lawful society instituted by God when he organized the children of Israel into a kingdom, or to the corrupt society of the world which lieth in wickedness, which is destined for destruction. With this understanding, the many passages containing the, containing the words ahion, or age, cosmos, or order, and oikumene, or the inhabited portions of the world, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world. All these words translated as world in the King James Version, with this understanding they all fall perfectly into harmony with the many messianic promises for Israel which are found in the prophets of the Old Testament. Now we arrive at John chapter 1 verse 11. And in 2006, when we first translated the Gospel of John, we compiled our translation notes for the next three verses of this Gospel into a paper which Clifton Amheiser then distributed to his mailing list and had published at the Israel Elect website under the title, Translating John 1, verses 11 to 13, or Translating John 1, 11 to 13. I sent Clifton this essay because I believed, and I still do believe, that a proper translation of these verses is crucial to an understanding of our identity faith. It is groundbreaking evidence of the truth of our Christian identity assertions concerning the gospel of Christ. And I was persuaded that this evidence should be made known as soon as possible among our Christian identity community. Of course, very few actually followed after it. I knew that it would yet be several years before I could publish my translation in my notes, and I did not want to have to wait so long to share these. Now, 12 years later, in June of 2018, I am finally beginning to publish my translation notes on John's Gospel in these presentations. And 
We must, of course, incorporate this essay into that endeavor. I'm going to include the entire essay, although certain parts of it may be superfluous to our purposes here, but of course I have edited it and added to it where I thought it required editing or elaboration. Translating 1 John, I'm sorry, translating John 1, 11 to 13. Many of those who wisely reject the universalism of modern denominational churchianity unjustly blame the writings of Paul of Tarsus for the errant universalist positions being trumpeted by the mainstream theologians. And throughout my early years in Christian identity, and not so much anymore, I guess because some people have just stopped arguing with me, but they haven't all changed their errant positions. I, I had always run into these Paul bashers that blamed Paul for all of the perceived universalism in Scripture. And it's simply not Paul's fault. Of course, it's the fault of the translators and the people who don't really understand Scripture. So I say here that these critics of Paul fail to realize, or at least admit, that the errors of universalism are founded in like manner upon mis misinterpretations of statements found in the Gospels and other New Testament Scriptures, as well as in certain passages found in Paul's letters. One passage in the Gospels, which has often been misinterpreted in such a fashion, is John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, which shall be discussed at length here. Once the New Testament is translated in a proper historical and scriptural context, while maintaining the integrity of scholarly Greek exegesis, it is certain that not only the Gospels, but also the letters of Paul and the other New Testament scriptures, are certainly not universalist. They are not universalist, but rather they are exclusivist. They are separatist, containing a consistent message born only to those nations which had in ancient times descended from the Old Testament Israelites. The twelve tribes scattered abroad as they are referred to by the Apostle James and also by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. Those nations are now found in the Aryan nations of Europe, a claim which is fully demonstrable from both history and scripture and especially from Paul's letters. In the King James Version, John 1, to 13 reads thusly, He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as had received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Now, in the Christogenian New Testament, we read the same passage to state the following. He came into his own land, and the men of the country received him not. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, nor from of the desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from Yahweh. Among the many New Testament manuscripts and fragments in which all or a part of these verses have been preserved, there are only a couple of differences in the readings of the Greek in verse 13. First, the early 3rd century papyrus P66 and the codices Sinaiticus and Beze have no one rather than not those at the beginning of the verse, which seems to be an irrelevant difference. Second, the Codex Vaticanus is wanting the phrase, nor from the will of man, which we see as a parallelism, the same meaning being conveyed in the phrase, nor from of the desire of the flesh, which is found in all of the manuscripts. Here the Greek of this passage shall be examined, one verse at a time, starting with verse 11. Eis ta idia alphan, he came into his own land. Ta idia being the phrase in question in our difference with the King James translation. Kahi hoi idioi, and the men of the country, and the difference with the King James translation revolves around the phrase, the interpretation of the phrase hoi idioi. Autan u paralaban, autan him u not paralaban, received, received him not, third person, plural, they received him not. The men of the country received him not. Citing an intermediate Greek-English lexicon founded upon the seventh edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, by itself, idios is basically and primarily an adjective meaning one's own, pertaining to oneself, private, personal, but the word has many related meanings in various contexts. This is also the primary definition for the word in the large ninth edition of the same Liddell and Scott lexicon. In this particular passage, there are two phrases which are derived from this word idios. Those we have translated as his own land from the accusative neuter plural form of the word with the article ta idia and the men of the country from the nominative masculine plural form of the word with the article 
hoi idioi. The interpretation of this verse revolves around the way that those two phrases are understood. Here, the first occurrence of idios is in the neuter plural, while the second is the masculine plural. It is not necessarily that they both describe the same entity, or John may have constructed the passage in a way that explicitly indicates the connection. There are several ways to do that in Greek, which John did not employ here. Both occurrences of the word appear with the definite article, where each phrase is therefore actually a substantive, a group of words functioning as a noun, only the second occurrence, being in the masculine, can properly refer to people. The first, ta idia, being neuter, must refer to something material, and not to people. While its rendering is poetic, the King James Version misses this important distinction entirely. The large ninth edition of a Greek-English lexicon by Liddell and Scott has for the phrase ta idia one's own property, citing examples from secular Greek writings. Thayer's, Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament has for the same phrase one's native land. So we wrote, he came into his own land. More literally, it would be, he came into his own properties, perhaps, or his own lands, even, since the phrase is plural. For the second phrase derived from idios here, <clears throat> and if you're wondering while listening to this whether there's a connection between idios and our English word idiot, you are correct. The word idiot comes from a noun form of idios, idiotes, and idiotes, or idiot in Greek, originally referred to someone who was privately studied, not to someone who was ignorant, but someone who was studied apart from the mainstream schools. So in that aspect of the word, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, I just had to get that in there. But even the Pharisees had said to Christ that he didn't learn in their schools. So, there you have it. For the second phrase derived from, idios here, hoi idioi, Liddell and Scott have in their ninth edition that it is used to refer to members of one's family, relatives. But the 1996 revised supplement to this edition of the lexicon illustrating an example where the word appeared in the singular adds fellow townsmen in addition to relatives, citing the appearance of the phrase ton idion symbiotain, those who live together with someone. And that's described in a volume of the 
Supplementum Agraphicum Grecum, based on an inscription which was found in Lydia, in ancient Lydia, right, which is modern Turkey, a portion of modern Turkey today. The word symbiotes describes one who lives together with someone, but even ton idion symbiotain is not necessarily one's own kinsman or relation by blood. It's a fellow townsman, as it's interpreted in that inscription. Thayer says of this plural form, hoi idioi, Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, that it's one's fellow countrymen or associates, John 1.11, citing this very passage. Here it shall be asserted that hoi idioi should be interpreted to be a reference to ta idia, describing the people belonging to the land rather than the people belonging to Yahshua Christ. It must be realized that not all of the inhabitants of Judea at the time of Christ's first coming were of his people Israel. As he himself tells us in John chapter 8 verses 30 through 47, and in John chapter 10, verse 26, among other places. So we read, in part, in the parable of the ten servants, found in Luke chapter 19, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. But his citizens, or the inhabitants of the land, hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Ultimately, in verse 27 of the chapter, at the end of the parable, he commanded his servants to take them who rejected him and slay them. Likewise, in John chapter 8, Christ told those who rejected him, If ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham, or this Abraham did not do. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin, or convicts me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words, yet therefore ye therefore hear them not. 
because ye are not of God. Then in John chapter 10 he told them, But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Finally, in Revelation chapter 2, he warned, I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews, or Judeans, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And in chapter 3 of the Revelation, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, or Judeans, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, speaking of the so-called Gentiles, speaking of the scattered Israelites in the assemblies of Asia. So if there were people in Judea who rejected Christ, and Christ himself said that the reason they rejected him is because they were not his people in the first place, then we cannot force a translation of John 1.11, which leads us to imagine that they were his people. If there is another possible translation, we must accept that other translation rather than make Christ, or even John, contradict himself. We have a better rendering. Those who rejected him were the people of the land that he came into as the heir, but they were not his people. This is also consistent with the parable of the vineyard dresser, found in Luke chapter 13. Rather, Besides some authentic Israelites, Judea was also populated with the hated Edomites, as Ezekiel prophecies in chapters 35 and 36, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 13, and as historians such as Strabo in book 16 of his Geography, and Josephus throughout book 13 of his Antiquities explicitly attest that these Edomites came to authority in Judea from the time of Herod is also evident throughout Josephus's Antiquities along with other historical accounts such as those of Eusebius and the letters of Paul citing Romans chapter 16 verse 20 or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and this is the very theme of the parable found in Luke chapter 19, from verses 11 through 27, the parable of the ten servants. Therefore, hoi idioi is here interpreted to refer to the men of the country, those people inhabiting Judea in general, and not merely to the relatives of Christ. And this interpretation is certainly in agreement with the definitions of the word provided by the lexicons. The definitions of the phrase provided by Joseph Thayer and by Liddell and Scott. 
The phrase refers back not to Christ, but to the land, the land's own people, not Christ's own people. John 1.11 may properly be read, he came into his own land, and the men of that land, or the country, received him not. Or alternative, alternatively, if hoiidioi is understood to refer back not to Christ, but to ta'idia, the land itself, the verse may be rendered, he came into his own land, and its inhabitants received him not. Either of these versions fully concurs with the Greek grammar, with the parable in Luke mentioned above, and also with the context of the entire Bible. There is no distortion of the meaning of the original Greek, while the distinction in the use of the neuter and masculine genders of the two phrases is also maintained. The two phrases containing that word idios. Now to now to proceed with John chapter 1 verse 12. Hasoi de Elaban Atan but as many who received him Hasoi being as many Day is but, Elaban is received, it is third person plural, and Atan is him. Edakin Atois Exusion, he gave to them the authority, Exusion being authority in the accusative case, Exusia, authority or power, in the King James Version it's power. Technophio Genestahi, which the children of Yahweh are to attain, or more literally, which the children of God are to attain. The which should have been, or may have been placed in italics. It may just be omitted. He gave to them the authority, the children of Yahweh are to attain. Tois pistusin, to onoma atu, which is to those believing. Tois pistusin is actually a participle, which with the definite article is also a substantive. It forms a noun to the believers in his name. To those believing in his name we would prefer to translate participles as gerunds, and we've done so in very many places in the Christogenian New Testament. Some people criticize us for that. However, we are grammatically, we are being precise when we do that. The first and last clauses of this verse, which I translate, but as many who received him, and to those believing in his name are not matters of dispute or contention when they are compared to the way that the King James Version has translated them. 
Where I must differ, however, is with that middle clause. Edoken autais, I'm sorry, edoken autois exousion techna theu genestahi, genestahi, which the King James Version renders, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, and we cannot agree with that rendering. The word techna, this is the problematical word here, <clears throat> the word techna is the plural form of technon, which means children, and it is ambiguous here, because the form of the word is the same in the plural in both the nominative and accusative cases, and it is not accompanied by a definite article which may clarify the matter. So it is debatable whether the word is the subject or object of the verb genestahi, which is actually an infinitive. It's an aorist infinitive medium voice form of ginomahi, which is Strong's number 1096. And ginomahi in its most basic form, according to Liddell and Scott, means to come into being. Here, for reasons that shall become evident below, I must treat techna as the subject of the verb, reading it in the nominative case, and not as the object in the manner that the King James Version has it. That this same form of the verb, ginomahi, may be understood in the active sense, it's a medium voice verb, which is here to attain, is evident in the Apocrypha at Second Maccabees 13, chapter 13, verse 13. There, in his edition of the Septuagint, Breton rendered the phrase, kahi genestahi, the same exact form of the verb here, kahi meaning and, genestahi, to attain, tes polios egratais, and that's another verb, and tes polios is the city, it's actually the genitive form of the city. Brenton rendered that phrase, tahi genestahi tes polios egratais, simply, and get the city. The King James Apocrypha rendered the same passage in the very same manner, and get the city. This phrase I would render more literally and more properly word for word, and to attain control of the city. I'm sorry, gratis isn't a verb, it's a noun. It means control. Similarly, in my own translation of Acts chapter 26, I'm sorry, 27, verse 16, which I actually completed a year before I translated John. The phrase perikratis, and there we see that same word, control, perikratis genestahi, the same verb, the same form of the same verb, perikratis genestahi 
case scaphes, which means of the boat or of the skiff, is rendered to attain full control of the skiff. The King James Version renders that phrase rather strangely, to come by the boat. These examples clearly support a similar interpretation of the verb, as I have translated it in this context here in John chapter 1 verse 12. Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he professes in Matthew chapter 15. His purpose was to confirm the promises made to the fathers. As Paul professed in Romans chapter 15, and as Luke explained in the first chapter of his gospel. The children of Israel cannot become children of Yahweh. Being children of Adam, they are already children of Yahweh. Citing Luke chapter 3 verse 38. And they are told as much explicitly in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in Isaiah chapter 43, and chapter 45, as well as in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, or in Hebrews chapter 2. The Apostle John later makes a mention, I believe it's in John chapter 7, of the children of God spread abroad. They are already children of God, not those who were spread abroad who could become the children of God. That's not the way he worded it. He mentioned the children of God spread abroad. There's an, that there is a huge difference there. In Luke chapter 3, the Apostle concludes his genealogy of Christ with the mention of Adam, which was, or in our modern English, who was the Son of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, in verse 1, the children of Israel are told, Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. In Isaiah chapter 43, the children of Israel are described in their captivity. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with ye, I will be with thee, I'm sorry, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave, he gave up, Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. 
since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. So we can't imagine that Yahweh ever replaced these people, or he's a liar. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. In Isaiah chapter 45, the children of Israel are spoken spoken of further in their captivity, or further spoken of in their captivity. Thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of the things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. Those things are what the gospel is for. The gospel is the answer to the question that Yahweh demands that they ask. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells his readers, whom he had already demonstrated are some of the lost Israelites. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, Paul explains the relationship of Christ to the children of Israel. And again, from verse 13, And again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children which Yahweh has given me, or which God has given me, I'm sorry, I'm reading the King James Version, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, meaning those who were already children, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. In Hebrews chapter 8, Paul explains, citing Jeremiah, that the new covenant is for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. These are the children of Yahweh. In the ultimate chapters of the Revelation, the city of God has their names on its gates, and ostensibly nobody else shall enter therein. In John, I'm sorry, it wasn't John chapter 7. It was John chapter 11, where John says of the words of the high priest, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. That is a reference to those same children which Yahweh promised to gather together in Isaiah the children of Israel, the ancient children of Israel. Abraham was never told that Gentiles or any alien people, foreign nations, would somehow become 
his offspring. That's what the Catholic Church teaches, but it's bullshit. It's a lie. That's what all of the universalist denominational churches teach, and it's a lie. Abraham was told the precise opposite. And the other races, who are not of Adam, are never addressed in the Bible. But for a few exceptions where certain tribes are mentioned, which evidently did not descend from Noah, such as the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Perizzites, and Rephaim of Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. They are grouped together with Canaanites, but they do not have a genealogy in Genesis chapter 10. Or there are places where aliens are pejoratively called beasts. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, the beasts with hands. In Isaiah chapter 56, the beasts who arise from the forests and devour the children of God. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 27, or in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 20, which is a citation of Exodus chapter 19. But there are certainly no indications that any of the aliens or the beasts could ever become the children of Yahweh. These tribes, where they are mentioned, were explicitly accursed and excluded. Rather, Abraham was told that his offspring would become many nations which we see in promises such as those in Genesis chapter 17 and 35, and which the children of Israel did become, and which Paul explains fully in Romans chapter 4, a fact which can be ascertained in ancient history. Speaking of those same ancient scattered Israelites, Yahweh says in Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that Yahweh had spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? That agreement was to be found in Christ, and these are the sons and daughters which Christ promised to gather, as we have seen in Isaiah, and as we have seen in John chapter 11. With all of this, and without violating any of the rules of Greek grammar, it is certainly more proper to render John 1, 12, John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain, to those believing in his name. He didn't give that authority to everybody. He doesn't give that authority to us. We don't have it today but he gave it to those who received it in his time up to the first Christian Pentecost. And to see what John was referring to, 
we shall cite gospel passages from Matthew chapters 16 and 18 and from Luke chapter 10. This translation is consistent with both Old and New Testament scriptures, but the reading of the King James Version for this passage produces serious conflicts which cannot be resolved in scripture. The authority given to those who receive Christ is described in Matthew chapter 16, where Peter had professed that Yahshua was the Christ. So we read, And replying, Yahshua said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I say to you that you are a stone, Petros. Yet upon this bedrock, Petra, shall I build my assembly, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I shall give to you the little keys of the kingdom of the heavens. And he whom you should bind upon the earth shall be bound in the heavens. And he whom you should release upon the earth shall be released in the heavens. So we read in John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name. John writing retrospectively. Then we read in Matthew chapter 18 where Christ is speaking to other disciples besides Peter that they were promised that same authority. And he says, Truly I say to you, whoever you shall bind Whoever you shall bind upon the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whoever you shall loose upon the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I say to you, that if two from among you upon the earth should agree concerning any matter of which they should ask, it shall be brought to pass for them by my Father who is in the heavens. Of course, that all relates to judgment, fellowship, association that he's speaking about. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So we read in John 1.12, But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain, to those believing in his name. John, once again, writing retrospectively. And yes, I'm purposely repeating myself. Then we read in Luke chapter 10, where Yahshua promised his disciples similar authority. After these things, the Lord appointed, and now I'm quoting the King James Version, the Lord appointed other seventy also, and he sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. 
And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the house, in the same house, remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaves on us we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Of course, the original people of Tyre and Sidon that are being referred to here from the Old Testament kingdom period are primarily the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. There were many Israelites in Chorazin and Bethsaida who had rejected Christ. And now Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So once again, <laughs> we read in John one twelve, But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name. These accounts from the Gospels are exactly what John was referring to many years later when he recorded these words in reflection upon the things which had transpired during the ministry of Christ. These words do not give Christians license today to take squat monsters out of the jungles of the netherworld and attempt to somehow make them into children of God. Rather, upon the restoration of the children of Israel, they, the children of God, will have that same power which the apostles were given. That is the deposit of the Spirit later spoken of by Paul. That is a Christian promise, and it was that which we have seen here in the other Gospel of Counts, to which John had referred. Before proceeding 
it may be appropriate to discuss the word translated as adoption in the King James Version where it appears in Paul's letters in Romans chapter 8 verses 15 and 23 Romans chapter 9 verse 4 Galatians chapter 4 verse 5 and Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 this word is huiothesia it doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament except in those places in Paul's epistles and it is literally the placing of a son or the position of a son a thesis is a placing or a position from the verb tithemi which is to put so you're putting a son son being the word huios while the word may be used to describe the placing of a son for the purposes of adoption or for any other purpose the actual act of adoption is described by the Greek words aispoiesis which is a noun and aispoieo which is a verb and literally means a making into or to make into which in the context of people is to make someone into a son so aispoieo or aispoiesis are adoption a general theme of the Bible as reported by the prophets the Gospels the letters of Paul and the Revelation is that Yahweh had put the children of Israel off in punishment and that the children of Israel would be reconciled to Yahweh through Yahshua Christ. That reconciliation includes the restoration of each Israelite upon the acceptance of Christ to his or her status as a child of Yahweh. upon a return to obedience which is a conformance with Christ that is the meaning of huiothesia a placing of a son into a particular position which in this case is a position of reconciliation with God but whether one wants to translate huiothesia correctly as the position of a son or the placing of one who is already a son or a daughter or incorrectly as adoption is even immaterial in the scriptural context since in any case Paul tells us explicitly that it pertains to Israelites who are them that were under the law whom Christ came to redeem that's found in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 in Galatians chapter 4 verse 5 and it pertains to no one else Paul specifically states in Romans chapter 9 that the adoption and the glory and the covenants 
and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises are for Israelites, whose are the fathers, and there are no other Israelites who could be of the fathers, but genetic Israelites. So how could Christians apply any of it to anyone else? There is no room for universalism in the New Testament, except in the minds of those who would pervert the intentions of the word made flesh. People would rather take one word out of context and build their entire worldview upon that one un misunderstood word than actually take the time to read the whole of scriptures and consider the context of each word as it appears. People who do such things are those who were described by Paul in Ephesians 4.14 where he described children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. With this we shall proceed to John chapter 1 verse 13. Oiuk ex ahimaton, which we translate, not those, oi meaning those, and it's a plural indefinite pronoun, and uk meaning not, not those, ex ahimaton, from of mixed origin, literally, the phrase is, from of bloods, plural. Ude ek thelematos sarcos, nor from of the desire of the flesh. Ude ek thelematos andros, nor from of the will of man. Al, al is a elision for Allah or but the literal Greek word for but. Day is also a way to say but. Because the next word is because the next word begins with a vowel, the last A, the final A is dropped from Allah. Al ek fiu egenethesan al ek fiu but from of God. Egenethesan, that's a form of the verb geneo. It's an aorist third person plural, but they who have been born from of God or from of Yahweh. We have already discussed the differences in this passage which are found in some of the manuscripts, which really do not change anything significant. But in any event, the text which we employ here from the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece is sufficiently attested by several other codices and papyri of equal or greater antiquity than those which differ with the exception of Papyri, Papyri 66, which has nobody from a mixed origin. The only point of contention here is the first portion of the verse, 
specifically with the interpretation of the words ex ahimaton, where the King James Version has of blood, a rendering which I must certainly protest. The King James Version's reading of the other words is acceptable, so here we will focus on this one short phrase where the King James Version has rendered ex ahimaton simply of blood. I cannot find this to be acceptable. Ex means from. And because the genitive case ahimaton would mean of bloods by itself, whenever I see that word ex or ek, the preposition which explicitly means from or out of among certain other meanings and other contexts. I usually translate it from of when it accompanies a genitive and that's simply to be more explicit to indicate more explicitly that the ek or the x is there. Employing the fifth edition of a concordance to the Greek Testament, a book that lists all of the occurrences of every Greek word which appears in the New Testament by Moulton and Geddon, employing that as a guide. Out of as many of, as 99 occurrences of the word ahima or haima as it's usually pronounced, ahima in the Strong's pronunciation guide in your concordance, which is generally what I follow, out of as many as 99 occurrences of the word ahima or blood in the New Testament, this is the only time that the word appears in the plural. And with all certainty, for that reason alone, the phrase ex ahimaton merits deeper investigation. Ahimaton is the genitive plural form of the word ahima or blood. I shall begin that investigation by turning to the Greek Old Testament the Septuagint to see how the plural form was used there so that we can understand why of all the places the word for blood appears in the New Testament it's only plural here in John 1.13. I would think that's significant that we should really look into that before we even try to understand this passage. According to another concordance, the second edition of A Concordance to the Septuagint and the other Greek versions of the Old Testament, including the Apocryphal Books, by Hatch and Redpath, Edwin Hatch and Henry Redpath. This is a huge work. It lists every word of the Septuagint which appears in the Greek and, and tells us where every word appears, in what passages every word appears. Every Greek, there are over 8,000 Greek words in the Septuagint. There are about 55 or 5,600 Greek words in the New Testament. 
So the Septuagint has an even larger vocabulary, and for that reason, this is a much bigger book. The word Ahima in the Hatch and Redpath concordance appears in the plural in the Septuagint manuscripts on as, on as many as 53 occasions, counting all of the listed variations among those manuscripts as they are supplied by Hatch and Redpath. So Ahima appears in the plural of the Greek Old Testament 53 times, where it appears in the plural in the Greek New Testament only once, with a couple of exceptions I'll discuss later. Examining the Septuagint and those 53 occasions, one must also consider the Hebrew form from which the word was apparently translated. The Hebrew dictionary in Strong's Concordance says of the Hebrew word for blood, dam, Strong's number 1818, that it was used figuratively, especially in the plural, to describe bloodshed. And this is the obvious meaning in the context of 50 of the 53 occasions where Haima is found in the plural in the Septuagint. And here we shall provide the list of those passages. Judges chapter 9 verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 3, Second Kings, which is actually Second Samuel in your King James Version. Second Kings chapter 3, verse 28, chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 21, verse 1. 3 Kings, Third Kings, which is actually First Kings in your King James Version. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 33. 4th Kings, or 2nd Kings in the King James. Chapter 9, verses 7 and 26, twice each. 1st Chronicles, chapter 22, chapter 28. 2nd Chronicles, chapter 30. Esther, chapter 8. Now, I don't accept Esther as canonical, but it's one of the occurrences where the idiom for blood appears in the plural. In Psalm, Psalm 5, Psalm 9, Psalm 15, Psalm 25, 50, 54, 58, 105, 138, Proverbs chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 2, chapter 19, Ezekiel chapter 16, 22, Ezekiel chapter 23, 24, 24 three times, four times, verses 6, 7, 9, and 14, Micah chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 7, verse 2, Nahum, chapter 3, verse 1, <coughs> Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 8, 12, and 17, the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 22, verse, verses, I'm sorry, verse 24, and chapter 31 in the Septuagint, verse 21, in the King James, that's chapter 34, verse 21, for some strange reason, the chapter order is different for Sirach in the King James Apocrypha. And in 1st Maccabees chapter 7 and 2nd Maccabees chapter 8 verse 3, chapter 14 verses 8 and 45. These are important and, and I didn't list every occurrence in that brief reading, 
but I want listeners to get the idea of the frequency in which the word blood appears in the Old Testament and all the verses are spelled out in the written version of this presentation and if you go check all these occurrences where the word blood appears in the plural it's clear in the context of nearly every single one of them that the context is bloodshed where Haima appears in the plural on these 50 occasions in all 50 of these places it is apparent and it is significantly important to notice that the translators maintained the Hebraism if we check our Strong's Concordance for every one of these passages and we check a copy of the Greek I'm sorry of the Hebrew scriptures because Strong's doesn't tell you the form of the word that appears in each place it only tells you the word so you actually have to check the Hebrew scriptures which I had done when I prepared this essay back in 2006 you have to check the Hebrew scriptures and in each place the word blood is actually plural in Hebrew so this is significantly important to notice that the translators of the Greek version when they translated the Greek from the original Hebrew they maintained the Hebrew idiom the Hebraism writing Haima in the plural in the Septuagint where bloodshed is implicated wherever the Hebrew word for blood had apparently been plural in the original twice Brenton's translation recognizes this idiom where he rendered the word as blood guiltiness in Psalm chapter 50 verse 14 and bloodshed at Ezekiel chapter 24 verse 14 however if one reads all of these passages it will be apparent that they all may have been and should have been rendered in that same manner Brenton just didn't do it he usually wrote blood of the three other occasions where Haima is plural in the Septuagint manuscripts one is at Amos chapter 2 verse 4 where only the Codex Alexandrinus has a plural form Haimata bloods in place of another word Matahia or vanities which is the reading in all the other manuscripts and examining the context Haimata is an obvious gloss so we have to throw that one occurrence out it's an error in the Codex Alexandrinus the final two occurrences of Haima in the plural are found at Hosea chapter 4 verse 2 where the word appears twice and the Greek phrase Kahi moikaya kekutahi, and they pour out adultery. Or, I'm sorry, adultery is poured. Adultery, and adultery is poured. Epitaskes upon the land.
Kahi moikaya kekutahi. That's um, third person singular. Kahi moikaya kekutahi epitaskes is literally and adultery is poured upon the land and the second occurrence in the next phrase. Kahi haimata and bloods. Eth haimasi upon bloods. Migusi they mingle. It's a verb. Kahi haimata eth haimasi migusi is literally and bloods they mingle with bloods or upon bloods. And that's translated the entire passage is translated by Brenton to read, and adultery abound in the land, and they mingle blood with blood. Even though blood here is plural on both occasions. This statement by Hosea is an obvious reference to race mixing, since it is in the context of adultery. Although the King James Version is somewhat different, Breton's translation is faithful to the Greek of the Septuagint text, which obviously differs somewhat from the Masoretic text here. However, we may translate the last part of Hosea chapter 4 verse 2 from the Hebrew to read, and committing adultery, they break away, and with bloods they touch bloods. If bloods should be rendered allegorically as bloodshed here, it is because mixing one's blood, or idiomatically, I should probably say, to be clearer, it is because mixing one's blood in adultery is essentially murder. It is bloodshed. It is the destruction of one's seed. As a digression, since I wrote this in 2006, I have found through the help of a native Greek reading friend that one use of the word for adultery by the ancient Greeks is indeed to refer to race mixing. The following is from the first part of our recent commentary on Paul's epistle to Titus, subtitled Purity Spiraling in Apostolic Christianity. I subtitled it in that manner to take a stab at the many of the alt-right people who reject the idea that white should maintain or seek to maintain absolute racial integrity. I said, anyway, speaking of our friend, anyway, our friend recently brought to our attention a passage in Aristotle's Animalia, or the history of animals, which reads, Tagar alagene, or since the other races or species, memek tahi, are mixed, third person, plural passive, and memoikutahi, and deluded, kahi memoikutahi, memoikutahi, that's a long word, since the other races or species are mixed and diluted, up alalelon, 
by one another or by each other. This passage is found five lines from the bottom of page 442 of Book 10 of Aristotle's History of Animals in Greek and Latin, evidently compiled by French naturalist Georges Cuvier and edited by Johannes Schneider and published in 1811 in Lyon, France. And we actually provide a link to that edition with this presentation. An 1878 translation of this book of Aristotle in English by Richard Cresswell at St. John's College at Oxford has this same passage to read, For the other kinds are mixed and crossed with each other. And even there we see that moikuo, the common word in the Greek scriptures, the common verb, in the Greek scriptures for adultery, refers to the crossbreeding of species. So that we could show the context, we will read the entire paragraph from Cresswell's translation. There was another kind of eagle called a sea eagle, which has a long and thick neck, curved wings and a wide rump. Its inhabitants, I'm sorry, it inhabits the sea and the coast. When they have seized their prey and cannot carry it away, they are borne down into the sea. There is again another kind of eagle called true eagle. They say that these alone of all other birds are true, for the other kinds are mixed and crossed with each other, both eagles, hawks, and other smaller kinds. This is the largest of all the eagles, greater than the fene, one and a half times as large as the other eagles, and of a red color. It is seldom seen, like that called Simindus or Kimindus. We are not going to argue with Aristotle, Aristotle regarding his view on birds, or whether they really interbreed. Rather, we only care for the words which he used here and the manner in which he used them. This passage contains a perfect form of the verbs mignumi, which is to mix, in the form memektahi, and moikuo, which is to commit adultery, here in the form memoikutahi, which we must translate as since the other species are mixed and diluted by one another, mixed and adulterated by one another. And our Greek friend agreed that in this instance, moikuo, in a passive tense here in this context, would have to mean to be adulterated because of the mixing. If it bears that sense in the passive voice, then in the active it must mean to adulterate in the sense of race mixing. So we see that the Greek word moikaia can refer to adultery as in having sexual relations with the spouse of another, but it can also refer to the sort of adultery which results from race mixing. That is the end of our explanation that race mixing is indeed a form of adultery, which is prohibited by God. It can also be described with the word fornication. But here it serves to see that where Hosea mentioned bloods touching bloods, 
in the context of adultery, he was certainly referring to the adultery of race mixing. Now returning to the New Testament, apart from the passage at John 1.13, Hyma appears on 98 other occasions, including a spurious interpolation found in Luke chapter 22, verses 43 and 44, and where the word is also found in some manuscripts in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and where, do ye, where at the end of Matthew chapter 27, verse 49, some manuscripts contain a line which is similar to the text of John 19.34, but which is not found in the King James Version. So in other words, we're counting all the occurrences of Hyma, regardless of whether or not they're in only the original manuscripts or only in the King James. Of these, of all these 98 other occurrences, Hyma only appears in the plural twice, and that only in a couple of the manuscripts. It only appears in the plural twice of these other occurrences, right? I'm not counting this time here in John 1.13. The first is at Revelation 16.6 in the Codex Sinaiticus, where it appears in that manuscript to be a gloss for the Hebraism since the context is bloodshed. <clears throat> All other codices and papyri have Ahima in the singular at Revelation 16.6. The second is at Revelation 18.24, where the text upon which the King James Version is based, the majority text, which is actually a large collection of late medieval manuscripts, has Ahima in the plural, as do a couple of 10th century manuscripts designated 046 and 051 in the Nestle Aland system. All of the older manuscripts, some which date from the 4th and 5th centuries, have Ahima in the singular here also. Therefore, it is relatively safe to say that this word, Ahima, appears in the plural in the New Testament only at this one passage, John chapter 1, verse 13, which all of the extant manuscripts of John attest. And that even, and this is the important point I'm trying to make here, even the Hebraistic use of the word, where it is rendered in the plural where bloodshed is meant, carried over into the Greek of the Septuagint, but it did not carry over into the Greek of the New Testament scriptures. This occurrence in John 1.13 is therefore unique. Thayer has ahima, the Greek word for blood. Thayer has it in part. Since the first germs of animal life are thought to be in the blood, the word serves to denote generation and origin in the classics also, John 1.13.
citing this very passage, Joseph Thayer, in his New Testament Greek-English lexicon, informs us that it refers to generation and origin. That's in complete agreement with our own interpretation here. In the intermediate edition of their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott have at Ahima, in part, blood, and then in part three of their definition, like the Latin sanguis, S-A-N-G-U-I-S, blood relationship, kin. We get sanguinity in English from that Latin word. Hopros ahimatus, one of the blood or race. Likewise, in a large ninth edition, at part three, blood relationship, kin, blood or origin. And here, in John chapter 1, verse 13, where Hyma appears in the plural, Thayer and other lexicographers admitting that even here it refers to origin. We would certainly agree. Thank you, Thayer. Thank you, Liddell and Scott. However, we would assert that since it is also in the plural, and they did not admit this, it must refer to multiple origins, to mixed blood, to bloods. As Thayer, Thayer, as Thayer himself nearly suggests, but where he failed to address the plural form and chose instead to ignore it. Furthermore, we are supported by the usage of the plural at Hosea 4.2 in the Septuagint where it is speaking of adultery in the context of adulterous race mixing. Since the Hebraism concerning bloodshed certainly does not fit the context for the plural use of Ahima at John chapter 1 verse 13, and that Hebraism appears nowhere else in the Gospels, although bloodshed is often referred to, for example, in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 51, this explanation that the word denotes mixed origins here is the only valid alternative. Otherwise, why else should the word appear in the plural here only of all places? And why does the word appear here at all, when in so many places in the New Testament, the Greek words genea and genos are used to describe race and birth, rather than ahima, or blood. The plural of ahima here was used to convey a specific meaning, which the other words and phrases could not do in so simple and eloquent a manner, especially in conjunction with the phrases which follow concerning carnal desires and the will of man in opposition to the will of Yahweh. For it is unchecked, carnal desire, 
which had gotten the Adamic man into trouble from the beginning, which is evident in Genesis chapter 3. While all of the children of Adam were created from one, and the appearance of the word blood at Acts 17.26 is refuted by the better and older manuscripts, Adam was not merely the first man, but the first white man, as attested to by the biblical and historical records, from which the white race alone can be traced, as well as the anthropological and archaeological records which supports the history. And the very meaning of the word Adam in Hebrew to be ruddy, to be able to show the blood through your skin. Adam has that meaning because the word Dom is blood. That reading mixed origins for the plural of Hyma makes sense in the biblical context here in John 1.13, as we have just fully explained, is fully realized once it is understood that the Judean nation consisted of both Edomites and Israelites, and Esau, father of the Edomites, took his wives of the Canaanite races, Genesis chapter 36, who were in turn mixed with the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, the Rephaim, the so-called giants of Genesis chapter 6, and other races, such as the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, and Perizzites, who did not descend from Adam. So they were apparently aboriginal, non-Adamic peoples of unrecorded origin, along with the Rephaim, who were the descendants of the fallen angels, and the race-mixing described in Genesis chapter 6. Seeing that the Edomites of Judea were in part descendants of Cain and the Rephaim, one can understand how Herod, an Edomite, as Josephus often attests in his histories, could be representative of Satan. The serpent which had attempted to destroy the Christ child, Revelation chapter 12 verse 4, and only Herod, the Edomite fulfilled such a description as the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel attest. Once this is understood, one can also understand how the serpent seed had bruised the heel of the seed of the woman and many other aspects of the Old and New Testaments. In Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 11, Christ himself attested that his opponents descended from Cain, since only Cain could be responsible for the blood of Abel. The descendants of Seth certainly cannot be held responsible for the blood of Abel, not by any means. As we shall see, in John chapter 8, Christ also attests that his opponents are descended from Cain, since only Cain 
was a murderer from the beginning. With all of this, I must read John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 in this manner, and this reading is fully within the constructs and meanings of the Greek words as we saw described in the lexicons of Thayer and Liddell and Scott, and also in their use in other passages of Scripture, both New Testament and Old. He came into his own land, and the men of the country received him not. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which children of Yahweh are to attain, to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, nor from of the desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from Yahweh. And of course we will dig deeper into that phrase when we present John chapter 3. Those born from Yahweh can only be those descendants of Adam endowed with the spirit of Yahweh. Those who are born from above, those who are born in accordance with his law of kind after kind. Rather than in fornication, which is the pursuit of strange or different, the word being heteros, different flesh, as we see in Jude 7. Rather, Adam and Eve are our example, as they were of the same flesh and the same bone. For this reason, Paul warned the Corinthians not to commit fornication, as their ancestors had at one time done with the Moabite women, and 23,000 of them were slain, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. By this, Paul had referred back to Numbers chapter 25 and the events recorded there. The Israelites were not punished so severely for mere idolatry, but for fornicating with Moabite women. For the Baal religions were nothing but fertility rituals, which were culminated in sexual unions. In this chapter, Phineas slew a man, not upon some foreign altar, but a man who was coupled with a foreign woman in his tent. For his action, Phineas was greatly rewarded. The day is coming, praise Yahweh, when there shall be many more like Phineas. Soon we shall hear the call, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. The phrase of mixed blood is commonly used of people with multiracial backgrounds. Had the King James Version rendered the plural word ahimatone at John 1.13 literally as of bloods rather than of blood, which is entirely dishonest, Surely many of our people might have recognized the meaning of such language, and they might have asked, 
these newfangled liberal pastors of recent times some hard questions, rather than being led astray by their erroneous premises. At the very least, the King James Version and other modern versions may have rendered John 1.13, which were born not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yet there always seems to be a soapbox somewhere from atop which some liberal humanist, usually a Jew or someone of some other mixed race, is found preaching the brotherhood of man, or God really didn't mean that, and other universalist punchlines. God changed. Oh, God changed that. Jesus changed that. Paul changed that. And thereby they deceived the sheep. They're only deceiving the sheep. Clearly, John tells us that it is not the will of the flesh, which is lust, which shall prevail, nor the will of man, which is humanism, but rather the will of Yahweh shall prevail. On which end of Phineas's spear would one be found? One's worldview, based upon what one has perceived to be true, but which is not necessarily so, is a good indication of the answer to that question. This concludes our edited and somewhat expanded version of this essay, which I had originally written in 2000, 2006. And so it concludes our commentary on John 1, verses 11 through 13. I'm aware that after three presentations of this gospel, we've only covered 13 verses. I imagine that once the foundation is laid in these very in understanding these very important passages that perhaps in future presentations we will move along a little quicker. I pray, otherwise I'll just make a career out of John alone. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel and the eternal enemy of all Jews, every Jew, regardless of what emanates from their lips and of all the other races as well. Good night.